Turn with me in your Bibles once again to Hosea. I do have the text there provided for you on your outline. So we have the book of Hosea written some 2,700 years ago, yet still fresh for us today. The book of Hosea contains 14 chapters, which are no doubt a, a summary of the totality of a prophet's ministry in northern Israel. What is contained there summarizes a message that was given, no doubt, time and time again over a 50-year period. As he began his ministry, there was some stability still in the northern kingdom. Uh, there was still great affluence. There was a certain level of peace with the other nations. But over the 50 years, over the time of the prophecy, more and more fell apart for the northern kingdom, coming to the point of utter destruction in the last chapters of Hosea as the backdrop of his oracle at that time. Of course, the underlying theme of all the prophets is redemption. And you don't see it just looking at it in a vacuum. You have to recognize how it fits into the rest of biblical revelation and how Christ is ultimately the one who will provide the obedience that the people never can provide, us included. So it's always giving us this dark picture with the light of Christ looking forward to it so that our trust and faith in him would be built up. And for those who are living in that day, that they would look to the day of God's redemption in Messiah. It's not hopeless for them as they read it. Those who had ears to hear would hear and respond with, with repentance. In fact, really, chapter 14 brings us to this point, this point of, if you will, dedication, this point of returning to the Lord for those who would hear. Sure, those who lived in this time would have to deal with the plundering of the Assyrians and the Egyptians, uh, but they would, in fact, have hope for their future generations that as they trusted God's redemption, that he would provide for them. Do we hear the call to return? Have we gotten too proud to think that we should not also be asked of the Lord to return to him? Uh, have we worshipped idols? Have we bowed down to other things? Have we found our satisfaction in something other than Christ? Because if that's true of us, and I think it's true of us all at some point, then we are bid to return to the Lord when we hear his word. We shouldn't say this doesn't apply to me, or boy, I'm glad I'm with the Lord and I don't need to return, or no, I'm not going to. None of those should be responses. If they are, we'd be just like the hearers of Hosea's original prophecy. I know it may not be popular, as the preacher saying, but I assure you, we have to return to the Lord. We must repent in the many ways in which we fail Him, or we worship something other than Him, or we find our satisfaction somewhere else, or we look after, or look going after it. Do we hear God's call to throw away our idols and turn to God? Hear God's word, Hosea 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will, not, and we will say no more, our God, to the works of our own hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. And his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, 
What have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this prophecy of Hosea. We thank you for how it paints a very real picture of our sin, not just the sin of the northern kingdom, but of our own sin. Lord, give us eyes to see. Make us sensitive to your spirit today that we would seek to renew our love for you today by your spirit, that we would return to you if need be. And for those who have not yet come to you, that they would come to you. Lord, we thank you for your great grace. Thank you for how you've manifested it in this book and throughout your word, but ultimately in the person of Jesus, dying for our sins, making a sufficient sacrifice for us. We thank you for this. We ask you to guide us and change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've come to 14 chapters of Hosea. And you have to admit that if you just read them straight without stopping to consider and so forth, they could be heavy, heavy stuff for really 10 of the chapters. Uh, The first three chapters is just the life of Hosea, really, and the tragedy of marrying this adulterous woman who keeps on in adultery after they marry, to the point that Hosea even has to go redeem her from her slavery. This picture of God's love for his people is manifested in Hosea and his love for his adulterous wife. But then after that, the book is just heavy and heavy and heavy, and it, it leads you to this point in chapter 14 where really, what do you say to God? He just laid us bare. He just he's shown my heart, and I see it in the, northern, uh, the kingdom of northern Israel there. Uh, what do I do? Kind of reminds me of a friend of mine uh, who is a junior. His father had worked most of his life to buy a Corvette. Back in the day, I think it was like an 87 Corvette, whatever was the new model for that era. And my friend, uh, his father, talked all the time about this Corvette he was buying. He finally bought it, put it in his garage, and we were between our junior and senior years. He was not allowed to drive it, not allowed to even barely look at it. And so it was all known to all his friends what an idol this thing was to his dad. And wouldn't you know, on a wet day, he decided to take it out. And going about 70 around a curve, he went off the road and wrapped it around a tree. He lived, was unscratched, but destroyed the car. What do you say to dad after that? I mean, there's nowhere to hide. You weren't supposed to do it. You defied him and went out and did it. It's precious to him. And then you destroyed it. Now you're back. What do you say? There's, just, there's nothing you can't say, is there? But I'm sorry. Well, there's a sense in which I think we can get caught up in that with our relationship to God. We're caught. We know he sees us and we just don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. What can we say, God? Well, he doesn't leave us there. In chapter 14, he really gives us, if you will, a process for us to follow when we're returning to God. Now, I want to say from the beginning that repentance, returning to God, is a grace of God. Repentance itself is a saving grace God gives. But there's a living out of it that we actually sense and perceive and experience, and that's what's described here. So in a sense, we're recognizing if God's giving us true repentance, what it looks like, this process that we'll find in our text. How do we return to God? If we look through these nine verses, you'll see that there's confession, there's a renouncing, there's a believing in the gospel, the message of restoration, and a surrendering going forward. Confession, renouncing, believing, surrendering. We see them all laid out for us. 
An English preacher at the turn of the century, Alexander McLaren, said this well, Sin brings ruin for nations and individuals. In the plain teaching of each man's own life, exhort each to return unto the Lord. In other words, we don't have to argue with each other much to realize we need to return to the Lord as we are sinners. We have all proved, McLaren continues, the vanity and misery of departing from him. Each of us knows this of ourselves. Surely, if we are not drawn by his love, we might be driven by our own unrest to go back to God. So if it's not just the message of his redemption, that if that doesn't work to pull you, certainly the unrest in your soul would move you to seek him. However it is he brings us to himself, we must go back to the Lord, consistently, constantly through our lives, considering how we have strayed and how we must return unto the Lord. And I think we have for us a great picture of this. First and foremost, you have to begin with an honest confession of your sins. Look at verse 1 and verse 2. It says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with the bulls, with bulls the vows of our lips. Now notice in verse 1 and verse 2, with regard to confession, that twice we are told to return to the Lord. But we return to the Lord with something, and that's our confession, an admission of our guilt, acknowledging what God knows, but we say it. It's sort of like when we confess our sins corporately. It's not that God doesn't know what we're saying here, but we're owning it. We're saying, this is true of me. This isn't just true of the guy over there who is more evil than me. This is me, and I confess it. I own it. I am honestly saying to you, Lord, I am a sinner. Just like the prodigal coming home with nothing left, he had to go back to his father, and he came Uh, just wearing all that he had on his back. He had squandered everything, and he comes back to his father as a confession, if you will, that he was wrong. By coming back, it's saying that my idea of self-sufficiency didn't work. I'm coming to you. I'm coming back to you. It's a confession, an honest confession of our bankruptcy before the Lord. Confess our sins honestly. Sin always leads us away from God. It always leads us away from peace. Sin always leads us from satisfaction. We think we're going to satisfaction, but we're never satisfied. Sin is insatiable. Never ends. Sin moves us away from contentment. Look what it says in verse 2. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, except what is good, we will pay. With bulls, the vows of our lips. So we bring honest confession by what we say. We are honest about our sin We don't ignore our sin. We don't try to justify our sin. We don't hide it or we don't deny it. We come to the Lord saying we are sinners. And this is how I've sinned. And words are particular, so choose them particularly. Uh, Confess your particular sins. Don't leave out one thinking I've, I've, I've confessed them all, but you know of another. Clearly, we won't remember them all. Christ covers that. But recognize we should come to him with words that are well chosen, saying that we confess God to you. True confession and repentance then manifests itself in obedience, sacrifice if necessary. And in this day, before the time of Christ, they would bring sacrifices. Notice the sacrifice isn't a barter for God's forgiveness, but rather, take my iniquity away. I confess to you and I will bring. It's kind of like when Zacchaeus came to Christ and he repented of all his wrongdoing and sin. And it was clear that uh, salvation had come to that house, as Jesus says. And what does he do? He returns fourfold to those people that he had robbed. Not just what the law said, but beyond that. He, would, he did something as a result of his confession, showing it was a real confession. It was true. How do you return to the Lord? Well, first, confess your sins honestly. That's what 
the Israelites are bid to do in verse 1 and verse 2. But also, very importantly, we must also renounce anything that we trust besides God. It's trust in other stuff that got us into that bind in the first place. So renouncing those things is necessary. It's not just I got caught, I confess. Now I want to just look for the first opportunity to get back into whatever I was doing. No, it's renouncing. It's saying after you've confessed, hey, these things have led me to this place where I have to confess. I renounce these idols in my life. True repentance is accompanied by change in our lives. Whatever it is for you, you must renounce it. But look at verse 3, and it kind of gives us a picture, at least in a very principled sense, of what we ought to renounce even in our own lives. Look at verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. There's a confession, which is really a, a renunciation of their prior tie and dependence upon Assyria. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. This is a reference to their dependence upon Egypt for horses. And we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. This is referring to the actual fashioned images that they made from silver and gold and were bowing down to. There are actually three renunciations that are given in this verse, verse 3, that help us. Statements of rejection concerning things they had developed an unholy trust for. Now, I want you to consider them closely and see how they meet us right where we live. First, renounce dependence on Assyria. Second, renounce horses. Renounce physical idols. Renouncing Assyria. What does this mean? Well, this has to do with their trust in someone other than God for security. Can we relate? Uh, they were paying off Assyria so Assyria wouldn't attack them. They thought by paying Assyria, that's their big problem. Not the wrath and anger of God. That's not their problem. The problem is Assyria. So let's pay them off. And part of our payoff would be to take in to our midst their religion, their people, things that would taint them further. And so our security, they said, is going to be found in that foreign power, that pagan power, that enemy of God. They're going to be our security. Renounce Assyria. That's what's being said. If Assyria is happy with us, then we'll be okay. We'll be safe from physical violence. We'll be provided for. We'll have security and protection. Now, what ungodly source, outside of God's provision for you, are you trusting today? Every one of us falls into this. How about... The company you work for. Is that your security? If Sprint does this, is that how I know if I'm protected and provided for? As their health goes, so does mine. Or Black & Veatch or Cerner or Hallmark or whatever company it is that had you come here maybe even. Is that the lens through which you see provision is the company? Or do you see it through God? That's trust in Assyria. But it's more than that. It's all sorts of securities that we find ourselves in that are ungodly. They're not of the Lord. They're not ways in which he's given us to provide. Think of all the ways this can happen. Uh, whose stock do you own? Whose unbelieving psychology do you bring, think will bring you peace and comfort somehow? Uh, is it your boss who, if you think they like you, then you'll be secure, protected, and provided for? Are you trusting in Assyria? Or are you trusting in God, where he's placed you, where he will put you? How he will provide, how he will make you secure. They had long sold out on that. They were much more worried about Assyria than they were about God and what he had promised and what he was saying would come to happen if they did not repent. Renouncing Assyria has to do with trusting in someone other than God for our security. That's exactly what it means to these people in this day, and it certainly can mean similarly to us. What does it mean, renouncing horses? What does that have to do with it? It has to do with Israel's dealings with acquiring horses from Egypt for military power, again, for their own protection. 
they needed protection, they thought, and so we'll cut deals and we'll bring horses into our arsenal. And you may say, well, that's not a bad idea. Well, except for the fact that God told them in Deuteronomy 17, listen, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Horses were for the purpose of security militarily, but they're also a, a sign, a status sign, and everyone in the region knew it was from Egypt. That's primarily where they were bred, and that's where you got them. And so by having them, it was almost like a statement that Egypt has a stake in you. You, you use their means as a status symbol rather than the status symbol God gave, gave them, which was a temple, which was his presence there with him, the horses instead. Listen, how does this translate to us? Do we depend on worldly methods for whatever it is we're doing in our family, in our church life, you name it, more than we depend on what God has given us? What worldly ways do we pursue thinking that will gain us progress or advancement? You know, we could have good and godly goals, but we could use worldly methods to get them, get there. You know, the church has constantly struggled with such a thing. We want more people to come, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We want them to hear of Christ. We want to, them to see the glory of God. But our, and our motives start out pure. But before you know it, we're employing methods that are just not godly, not prescribed by Scripture. Worse yet, we might even curb the message of Scripture to get more to come in. And so all of a sudden, the method becomes more important than the message, and we change. Constantly looking for other ways to improve, you might think. Renouncing horses was part of this renunciation process that happened for them. Renouncing dependence and satisfaction in all else except for God. But notice it also says very pointedly, renouncing physical idols there, as you see in the text, the things that, the work of our hands as it's described. This has to do with the practice of actually crafting an actual idol of silver and gold, setting it up in the house or in a place in town where people would bow to it, worship it, put stuff before it. The key phrase in verse 3 that helps us to get a greater sense, notice verse 3, and we'll say no more our God to the work of our hands, ascribing deity or divinity to things that we make with our hands, to insult the real creator with a creation, saying the creation is its equal par with the one who really created. It's just an insult to God when we do such things. When things we have done or crafted we say deserves our worship, it's really to say we worship ourselves. That's what it's saying. And we make so many idols. You know, I alluded to the job one, but think of all the other idols we have, the stuff, the money, the things, the accumulation of things. How about the idol of just... of of needing satisfaction in all these different ways. Maybe it's a hobby you have. It's not a bad hobby, but that's where you're going to get relaxation. That's where you'll get fulfillment. Maybe when I'm down or when I need to cope, I'm just going to go out and shop. That's going to be it. That's going to be my savior. That's going to make me feel better for that moment. How about social networking? You know, you got to, sort of like junior high, but for adults, where you just got to know everybody. And, well, that person knows that person. I've got to figure out a way to know them. And, and we just look like kind of a, a junior high school among adults. And we find our satisfaction in everyone else's opinion of us rather than God's. And we set up that as an idol. How about worshiping our children? It's so in vogue to look like we're real family people, but we end up doing everything based on an orbit that's around our kids rather than to God. And we teach our kids that they're the universe, not God as the center of it. it. Seems so well and good, but it becomes an idol when our whole life is defined by our children and not by our relationship with the Lord. 
food, drink, substance, all-consuming things, academic degrees, some kind of intellectual prestige, whatever the thing is that is hampering your enjoyment, your enjoyment of God, that thing is an idol. When you're finding or seeking after satisfaction, after something, that's an idol to you. And he's saying, take out, renounce that thing. We have an eternity to be satisfied in Christ. Why would we settle for anything less now? You know, I have a picture in my mind when I think of this, the renunciation part. Picture it with me. You get a little kid, and there's similar stories in my background that don't fit right, right well, so I'm going to make up this story, but I think you could picture it. You put a kid in a candy shop, and there's this candy shop I used to go to as a kid that had all sorts of bulk candy all over it. And it would be my dream just to be let loose in there, to eat as much of it as I want. So you let this kid in there, and they get in there, and uh, they're told, don't touch anything. An hour goes by, they're doing all right. Another hour, no one's there. Finally, the kid gives in, and he busts open all the different bulk candy lids and starts stuffing his face with it. Can't fit in his mouth anymore, and this kind of syrupy drool's coming out of his mouth, and he grabs stuff, puts it in his pockets, his upper pocket, stuffs it anywhere he can find it. He's ready to walk out, and there the parent has caught them. This sense of shame comes over them. They've been caught. Pockets bulging with candy, dropping out through his pant leg, stuff coming out of his mouth, face sticky, caught. Feels embarrassed that they're doing They drop what's in their hands, They start to walk to the door. They spit out what's in their mouth. But in their mind, they still got their pockets full. That's what we do when we confess our sins with full recognition that we're just going to go do it again. Thank you, God, for the forgiveness. And we keep our pockets stuffed with our sins, knowing when we get the next chance, we'll do it again. Renunciation means, God, rip this from my life. It's taken me over. It's going to kill me. Take it from me. I don't want to get rid of it. Take it from me. That's what renunciation means. How do we return to the Lord? We confess our sins honestly. Then we renounce anything that we trust in besides God. They may be my security. God, take my security away. Take my job away because I love it more than you. Take this relationship away because I worship him or her more. Take this substance away because I love it more than Jesus at the moment that I'm faced with it. Renouncing means asking God, in essence, to help you reject what it is that got you there in the first place. Confessing our sins honestly, renouncing anything we trust in besides God. But thirdly, notice in the text, verses 4 through 8, we have to believe God's word of restoration, the gospel to us. And the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners despite their desert of wrath and judgment. And he does so ultimately through Christ. And throughout the prophets, you get these pictures of God's monergistic salvation. That means he alone works our salvation and it manifests itself in our lives by obedience, by the repentance we confess, but it's God who does the work and it's no different in the prophets and anywhere else in scripture for that matter. Look at verse four, what it says. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. Verse five, I will be like the dew to Israel. Down in verse eight, I, it is I who will answer and look after you. The gospel of grace must be believed and embraced. And do you see the undeserved favor shown to those who deserve only wrath? We have it here. Do you see the primacy of God's gracious actions over any possible merit in us? Verse 4, I will heal, I will love. And when it says I will be like the dew in verse 4, that means I will nourish you, I will make you flourish, I'll give you water and you'll flourish. Verse 8 says, I will answer and look after you, which means from me comes your fruit is what he says. I will give you fruitfulness. Grace is God giving us who deserve punishment great blessing instead because of Christ, ultimately. God will do all these things, heal, love, 
nourish and cause us to flourish. He will make you flourish. Look at verse 5. I will be like the dew to Israel. Israel depended on the dew for nourishment. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. Remember, this is against the backdrop of their trust and all this other stuff. He's saying, you know, Assyria can't make this happen for you. Your, your idols can't make this happen for you. I can do this for you, and I will do this for you. We have to believe that. We have to embrace that. You will be like a lily. That's with reference to the, the beauty that the, the lily gives off. But it says you'll be like a tree also, which is something that's strong and stable and long-standing. That's what will make us like in Christ. You will be fruitful, and that shoots will go forth from you. So you won't just be a tree unto yourself. Those shoots that go out from a tree that you see pop up, those will be multiplying agents in your own life. There'll be fruit that comes off of you that multiplies other trees. You'll be like an olive tree, referring to a, a fruitful, year-round, long-term tree that gets old. You'll be a fragrance, a fragrance that emanates. Then when people smell it, they say, that's, that's the people of God. Back in my college days, I think Chicago is the best-smelling city in the country. Now, not everywhere you walk, but there's a few places you walk, and if you've been to Chicago, what's the smell you really notice when you're near the loop? Chocolate. There's a company called Blommer, the Blommer Chocolate Factory, and there are certain times of the day where they're cooking, and anybody who's been there for very long will recognize it smells like brownies all the time. I mean, could you, what could be better? Maybe brownies in one spot, cheese somewhere else, and maybe like garlic another place. That would be the best. But it emanates so that there's a certain smell. When I smell chocolate today, I remember Chicago. I remember that smell as a college student walking over the Chicago River and smelling that, that, that chocolate wafting. The people of God should be like a fragrance to the world, that they bring a certain sense to the people who perceive them that that's God's people. That's the glory of God. That's God's people on earth representing him. There should be a fragrance that people recognize when they see the people of God or when they recognize the people of God. That's what God does for his people. He makes them that way. So all our efforts to become attractive, we need rather to trust in God and obey him simply and he'll make us a fragrance to the nations, a fragrance to the neighborhood. Believe God's restorative word to you. In this side of the cross, we, we are given even more revelation than our Old Testament forefathers. I know from Scripture that I am God's child. That's a word of restoration to me. That I'm a disciple, a friend of Christ, it says now, in Christ. That I've been justified according to Romans. I've been united to Christ in many places, but 1 Corinthians 6 in particular. I've been bought with a price and I belong to God. So do you who are in Christ. I'm a member of the body of Christ now. I've been chosen by God and adopted as his child. That's God's action. That's God's grace. I've been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I'm complete in Christ. I have direct access to the throne of grace because of Christ. I'm free from condemnation now. I'm assured that God works for my good in all circumstances, according to Romans 8. I am free from any condemnation brought against me, and I cannot be separated any longer from the love of God. That's God's restorative word to me, and it changes my life. I confess, I renounce, but I believe the gospel. That's what gives me ability to see victory over it the next time. I've been established, anointed, and sealed by God, according to 2 Corinthians. I'm hidden with Christ in God. I'm confident that God will complete the good work that he started in Philippians 1. I'm a citizen of heaven, according to Philippians 3. 
I have not been given the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. That's 2 Timothy. I'm born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. In 1 John chapter 5. That's God's restorative word to his people. Hear it and believe it. Staying in your guilt and beating yourself up over what you confessed and renounced will not gain victory. It's now resting in the sure victory that Christ has given us. Resting in his word of restoration for us. We confess our sins, we renounce, but we believe God's word of restoration to us. Finally, verse 9, the last verse of this prophetic message of Hosea ends with a proverb. Surrender your will or your thinking, your mindset, your worldview to God. Verse 9 says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright will walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Who is wise? Do you see your life in light of God's glory and your call to enjoy him? Is that the locus of your authority, God's glory, your enjoyment? In him as prescribed and taught to us by his word? Do you define happiness as enjoying God and his will for your life? Are you continually offering sacrifices of praise for the message of his restoration, for his redeeming you and giving you and your life eternal meaning? Or are we blinded by the temporal fleeting things that moths will eat and rust will destroy? Are we offering up on the are we offering up the eternal those eternal rewards and things on the altar of the immediate for satisfaction now. Whoever is wise, it says in verse 9, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. Reminds me of when Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Surrendering your will to God, this means to think God's thoughts, which we have given to us in his word. For the ways of the Lord are right. Remember, two weeks ago when I was on a plane, we're coming down over Kansas City and it was a really cloudy day. I'm not a pilot, but I could tell there's no way that guy could see. Now I know they have instruments that they rely on and that's why they're so confident. But for me, I'm just seeing clouds, and we started descending through the clouds, and I was still not seeing anything. It was like a quick break through the clouds. It was consistently in the clouds for quite some time, bumping around. Now, what gives that pilot such confidence is that he has instruments that he can depend on as he descends through it. The passengers don't have that. We just know they do. And, you know, life can be a lot like that. You're going through the clouds, and if you don't have some, some locus, if you don't have something, some compass, then you're going to be scared and you're going to be knocked about. But if you know you have and you keep your eyes on that, when you go through the clouds, when you descend down through them, uh, the landing will be clearer. We have that for us. The ways of the Lord are right. That's where we need to find our wisdom, brothers and sisters, with his word. And it will not always look like it. The cloudiness could be the culture. It just shades things and makes us think things that just aren't true. And even though we can say by looking at history that, that this is an error of thinking or an error of a way of living, uh, when we're in it, it's pressuresome and we succumb to it at times and we have to back off and say the ways of the Lord are right even when culture screams against it and we go that way, the way God has given us to go. The people of Hosea's day perished for their lack of knowledge. They did not believe the ways of the Lord were right. They didn't even know the ways of the Lord. So the key to avoiding the sin that estranges us from God, that gets us into the predicament we find in our forefathers here and we experience in our lives, the key to avoiding this is having our minds continually renewed 
with the washing of the water of the word, which ultimately is in the person of Christ, revealed by Scripture. The people of Hosea's day perished that way. We have opportunity. We have come in contact with God through Christ and by his word. Let us then return to God, confessing our sins, renouncing anything that we trust besides God, believing God's word of restoration, and surrendering our will to God. The last verse of the whole book, whoever is wise, let his, him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Thus ends Hosea's prophecy. God's word to God's people for all time. Let's pray. Lord God, we have read, studied, and considered a message of your redeeming love for these past months. Lord God, we have read of a people with whom we can certainly relate. We confess with the words of McLaren, sin brings ruin for nations and individuals. And the plain teachings of our own lives exhorts us to return unto you. Each one of us, O Lord, has proved the vanity and misery of departing from you at one time or another. Some are no doubt being convicted right now of their need to come to you or return to you. Surely, if we are not drawn by your redeeming love this day, we might be driven by our own unrest to go back to you. Lord, bring us to yourself. Make us love you solely. Make us love you wholly. Make us depend on you, be devoted to you, and cast off those things that surely moths will eat and rust will destroy. Father, glorify yourself by perfecting your saints today, by making them complete in every way, that your fame would be spread throughout the earth, emanating as a sweet fragrance that all would see and say, that, those are the people of God. Redeem us. Lord, I pray that we would be used in this way. In Christ, I pray. Amen.